Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. Today I have with me Dr. Richard Harvey. He and I co-authored a piece in the Harvard Business Review this week on the question, is your company really fighting racism or are they just talking about it? And of course, as academics, we have more thoughts than we could fit in the written piece. So I thought I would invite him here so we could have an extended conversation. So welcome, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. So the first thing I thought about when I said, oh, yeah, Richard and I should totally we should have this conversation is, um, did you ever think that you would be talking about corporate brutality and police brutality in the Harvard Business Review? <laughs> As the saying goes, the times, they are a changing. <laughs> so, no, never. I really, it's funny because, right, everything happened, the world had this mass awaking and change. And it it was almost like a pandemic on top of a pandemic. And I, I don't know about you, but I, that week after George Floyd's murder was, was came to our awareness, right. And was public in a way that, that you couldn't hide from it. And it's not like as black folks, this is not new, unfortunately, but this mass awakening was happening I got so many phone calls and emails from companies. Like, how, what, what can I do? Tell me what I can do. How do I respond? Did you have that same? It was over the weekend even. Did you have that same like rush of contact? Yeah, it was sort of interesting, right? Because, you know, you know, going back to March, I had a number of projects that were there. And then, of course, with the pandemic, they went away. And then, of course, with Floyd's murder, out of a sudden, they were resurrected again, right? So out of a sudden, it was back on the list of priorities um, after they'd fallen off. So, yeah, so, so it definitely sort of brought things back uh, to pre-COVID um, stat- statuses. Yeah, but, you know, it felt a little different to me. And I was trying to, I was trying to figure out, like, what was different, what felt different. And... I think it was, it felt like an opening and it was this opening where I felt like we could be extremely honest, right? So pre-COVID, there were companies who wanted to talk about these issues and wanted to know what they could do, but this felt like an opening to, to tell it like it is. And I, I like to think that that's what I do when I consult, but the freedom to just simply say this police brutality that you're swearing is so wrong. How are you, how are you so almost, um almost arrogant to, to think that it's only happening outside and that there isn't some sort of racism and brutality happening inside your own walls. Yeah, I mean, you know, right. I mean, we do this work and we know that sometimes it can feel like people are just checking off their list. Um, and I would say definitely pre-COVID, that's probably what a lot of this felt like. I mean, I think this work had been trending for a while upward anyway, but still a lot of that sort of was like checking off the list. I think, yeah, the difference um, is that I think people are sincerely aware, (laughs) right? There's a problem here. Um, And I think uh, to your point, I think the issue is um, them not realizing the problem is not just out there, right? Um, and also understanding the dynamic between the problem out there and what's happening within your own organizations and the ways in which what's happening in your own organizations facilitates and perpetuates what's out there. Um, and so definitely, yeah, it, I think 
Uh, things are different. Yeah. And it's, it feels like an opportunity, a couple things. Like you said, people realizing that there might be things that are happening inside that are replicating the dynamics. But then it also feels like it's a moment where people who are in leadership positions, so whether that's a business or like a corporate business, nonprofit, schools, I'm hearing leaders in general say, I need to do better as a leader and not, oh, I need to do better because it's the right thing to do, but that it's essential so that people who are within my organization or institution or the people that we serve or the people that we want to reach understand that I'm sincere and not just giving this lip service. So to me, it feels like a, almost a moment of reckoning for leaders of like, all right, this now is, is, is a part of a competency of being a leader when I would say it was before, but in a, in a way that is more clear to more people. Right. You know, we have this phrase, right? We refer to it as a moment of moral clarity, Right. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, seems like, right, what, what we're noticing that because it, it is interesting. I mean, you know, you and I are academics. And so we're not just satisfied with the fact that it is happening, but we also want to know why. Right. What is it about this one as opposed to the, you know, hundreds right, of cases, some of them seemingly even more severe, right? And so, so as academics, we're always sort of interested in what is it about this one, if for no other reason, so that, you know, sh- should we need to kind of do things in the future, right? Once we know what that key is, I mean, what's that trigger that lights the fire for folks, right? We hope to be able to replicate it. And so, yeah, so, so that's what's interesting. It's clear that something has changed, right? We're trying to probe why. And what is it about this um, scenario, uh, um, you know, and the context that, mm-hmm. that's facilitating um, such an urgency um, and sense of crisis that wasn't yeah. there before? Yeah, yeah. Because one, I'm seeing that it's more widespread. So Black Lives Matter as a as a term, as a concept, as an idea. I mean, we're seeing it as far reaching as NASCAR, right? Places that you would not have expected it to to reach, and that. That in and of itself was a controversial phrase just five years ago. Yeah. I mean, you talk about shockers. I mean, if there's one of these things that made me pinch myself, I think it was probably that one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. But so then there's that piece of, because some people are, are, are asking, well, well, shouldn't we write a statement? Don't we need to write a statement? And my reaction has been, and my counsel's been only if it includes action that to just say Black Lives Matter, the next question is going to be, all right, so what does that look like for you? How do I know you're, how do I know you're sincere? Now that it's trending, how do I know you mean it? And so my suggestion has been to organizations, make a statement only when you have something to say about how you're going to take action. Well, well, think about that in terms of relationships, right? I mean, statements of love are not the same thing as commitments, of love, right? And so, you know, and so it feels very much like that, right? Like, you know, if you've been dating somebody for a while and you want to take it to a next level, just making a statement about that really means nothing, right? Um, actions in forms of commitments of some kind really kind of, I think, say more um, than, than that. So definitely, you know, um, talk is cheap. Um, in this um, arena. So, yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, when you make a statement, so when you, when you profess your love or your care, right, it's, 
it needs to be followed up with some meaningful action. It's like, are your are your deeds going to align with your words? And so in some ways, you up the ante, you up the expectation. And I've been hearing from Black employees at different corporations that that this is a moment of a little bit of uncertainty, frustration, a whole, the emotions run the gamut. But to be frank, I mean, they're kind of giving their company the side eye. Like, are you, because last, I was black a couple weeks ago and you didn't, it didn't feel like you cared as much. And so is this care going to last and what are you going to do? So I'm hearing people say, you know, I've been in focus group after focus group. I've shared what my experience is like. I've taken the risk and been honest. And sometimes there's been retaliation. Sometimes there's been indifference. And so it feels risky and vulnerable in this moment to be black in a space that has made this declaration, right? But has not yet shown clear action. So I think psychologically, like for black folks in particular, it's, it's this interesting moment of like, I'm so glad you're awake. And why weren't you before? And are you going to go back to sleep? Yeah. I don't know if, if you heard from folks some of their reactions to their company's statements, but that's that's some of what I heard. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, um, to bring in a religious analogy, right? You know, uh, um, the, the idea of salvation or the idea of uh, um, awakening that case is best represented by what's called repentance, which is more than just feeling sorry about past deeds. It's literally changing them, right? I mean, that is the ultimate indicator, right, that one has had a religious experience. It isn't just the things that you now say. It's the courses of action that you commit to. Not that you're perfect in walking out those courses of action, but at least there's a real commitment to that, and there are some initial steps right, that sort of sense that. So, so I would say that, you know, you, you discern the realness of something, right, by whether or not there is corresponding action um, afterwards. And so we'll know if this is a real movement, not by the current outbursts of compassion and screaming. We'll know it um, when we see different patterns of action, you know, not today, right? But November, December, that kind of thing. Then we'll know um, the degree to which this was a real sincere turning of the heart as opposed to just a knee-jerk reaction to what's in the what's in the air at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so to just give folks who might not have had a chance to read the article of framing, uh, we talk about how police brutality, which is being called out right now, right? It harms, it, it harms and destroys and is, is, is something that we should be outraged by. And we argue that corporate brutality similarly harms, destroys and abuses and that, we need to be honest about that fact. And so we draw that connection between police brutality and corporate brutality. And um, I think one of the, not I think, we did, we said the first step in what you should do is to be honest about identifying the ways in which an institution has done harm and to do it in a way that isn't, doesn't try to explain it in a way that isn't defensive. And I don't know about your years of, of, consulting, I know that that is something that I have to work with leadership and organization around. It's like, all right, if you're going to ask this question, 
of what is the experience? How has race shaped the experience of someone in your company? You as a leader have to be prepared to hear the response and not try to explain it away, but, 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 or, well, this was a, this explains that, or there was a performance issue here. Like you need to hear and be able to sit with that. What's been your experience when you invite uh, corporations to, to reflect on the harm that's happened, or you do a climate survey and there's results that are hard to hear? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you've got it exactly right. Right. Um, you know, and, and I mean, that's human nature, right? And I mean, nobody yeah. really, even if you know that you've done wrong, it's hard to sit in the fire and have people tell you done wrong when you know you've done wrong, right? So, 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 so you know, that it's human nature to not want to um, sit in that fire. And I think, you know, I mean, we, we may get into this later, but I think it's even based upon some false understandings of the nature of bias. I think if you understand that, that bias is kind of a natural thing for people with power. And it doesn't necessarily make you immoral, it just makes you biased. Uh, um, and I think if you can distinguish between the two, then you can actually be willing to admit that yes, I did that thing that comes natural to people who are positioned as I am, right? Well, you know, yeah. and of course, you know, that doesn't justify what you did, but it makes it understandable. And I think it allows you to kind of say, you know, because the issue is not, you know, whether or not, if you're a person in a position of power, the issue is not whether or not there have been people who've been oppressed. The answer to that's yes. And um, how? The, the real question is, what have you done about it? Um, and, and that's the thing that you can really kind of, you know, move on. Of course, if you're in denial about the first one, then you're not going to, you know, even really kind of care about moving to the second. Um, so, so I think, yeah, so, so I think there's just some false assumptions about um, the nature of things. But yeah, that, that's definitely my experience. Yeah. And I think you just hit it directly is that if you knew, I think there is a denial. I think there's a component of denial. And I think that there's a way in which racism, the thing, the way that it gets structured, I think there's a way in which white folks don't see the harm and they don't know the harm sometimes. And I think you pair that with like you just talked about in terms of the positionality and how that power can also breed bias. Those together make it make self-reflection essential. But that is a that's a practice that doesn't just come naturally with a uh, with a high title that takes intentional work. Yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah. Um, what about this piece around um, being accountable? Right, like we talk about being accountable. We talk about disaggregating data. We talk about how you can realize that that this. I think that speaks to this piece around that you acted in a way that perpetuated bias. That that's that's really uncomfortable and that you have to be accountable. So that means identifying metrics. So what do you expect to change over time, right? Um, any thoughts about how organizations can be accountable once they're willing to identify that harm? Yeah, no, I think you said the word, right? Metrics, uh, um, being able to keep track of things uh, um, and also learn to... Um, not just look for uh, um, the overt signs of things, right? So, so uh, because, right, I mean, what we know about uh, um, the nature of bias and discrimination is that it tends to be more covert than overt. 
um, and that's why I think metrics are important. Sometimes you only see things, uh, and I'm talking patterns, uh, when you've got aggregations of data, uh, um, things that you'll totally miss if you're just kind of looking at a single situation um, one at a time. Um, and so metrics are very important um, because like I said, you're not gonna see it in individual situations. And also it's so easy to explain away an individual situation, right? Every situation that you see, I mean, you know, once again, we go back to the police shootings. I mean, in almost every situation, right? I mean, almost never are the victims saints. There's always something that you can quasi point to, right? You know, but it's only when one sits back and sees the pattern, right? Saint and no saint, right? The one thing that all these people tend to have in common is that they're unarmed people who get killed. Right. And, right. And no one deserves to be killed for insert those list of things. Yeah. And so yeah, you're right. So it's the pattern that's absolutely undeniable regardless of what you can point to in the situation, because it's it. The extenuating circumstances are also not common across the situations, right? So so the issues that you see with Floyd, they weren't there with Fernando Castile, right? Those weren't there with Trayvon Martin, right? Those weren't there with, you know, some so, so what I'm saying is that, so those can't be the causes, right? Because, you know, I mean, as scientists, we know that things that, you know, um, that uh, the cause has to be consistent across situations in order for it to be the cause. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those, those circumstances are not consistent across the circumstances, so they can't be the cause, you know, for what's happening here. So don't want to get too nerdy with it, but yeah, but it's an interesting thing, so. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's, it's easier for people to, to take one by one and dissect each scenario, right? Um, I heard a lot of folks who in the past few weeks say, well, we just need to hire more people of color, more black and indigenous people of color or more black people specifically. We just need to have more interns. We just need to get this pipeline. And my pushback is you can bring in all that you want, but have you looked at your data? Because you, it might be that at a certain level you're bringing folks in, but they're just not advancing. So what's happening in your environment that's keeping them from advancing? That's not about hiring. That's about mentoring, sponsorship, advancement, development. Yeah. Yeah. A, a sure indicator that you're about to go down the right, the wrong path is if you begin a sentence with something like, we just need, right? Or we just need, or if only, right? I mean, because what you're doing is you're simplifying it. If it were that simple, it had been fixed a long time ago. It's far more complex. Um, no unidimensional pronged attack is going to resolve this. It's going to require all hands on deck, multi-pronged attack. And, and, and so these sort of, we just need to, if only we just need, you know, these kind of things that, that's suggesting you are taking a very microscopic perspective at what is a far more complex systemic macro um, kind of problem. Yeah, well said. Well said. And I I like I like the fact that in the article we point to the difference between intent and impact and that that is essential and I think that's sometimes why we try to simplify it because then it feels like oh we could control this and we can you know and we can have good intentions and we can have a good impact but can you talk a little bit about about the difference between intent and impact? 
Sure, sure. And, it, and it, it's probably one of my favorite things to talk about because they denote, right, the two perspectives that oftentimes come in, into an uh, interactional situation, right? So, so, you know, I'll talk about it from an organization's perspective. Organizations may have a number of programs, policies that they're doing. Uh, and of course, they design those with some intentions uh, that they have. And oftentimes, it's very easy to assume that um, the existence of those programs is doing what you thought it would do. Um, and that is you're assuming that it's having impact. And the truth is that the only way you can know the impact is that you have to talk to the people, right, who are likely to be impacted. And you have to appreciate that uh, um, just because you intended for something to have a certain effect or to be perceived or felt a certain way doesn't mean that it had that effect or that it's perceived or that it's feeling that way. And so it's very important that you don't assume that your intentions um, is impact. The other side of that actually has to do with what happens when there's conflict. Well, oftentimes what happens is, you know, the alleged perpetrator and the alleged victim tend to retreat into the corners of intention and impact, right? Um, the perpetrators can, can only think about what they intended, right? So it normally sounds something like, well, I didn't intend to say that, or I didn't intend to do that, I didn't intend to do that, right? They're trapped into their realm of intentions, and it's hard for them to get out of that corner and appreciate the impact. And it can be the same thing for victims, right? We can be very much trapped into the corner of impact. This is how it felt to me, this is what it did to me, Right? And it's very hard to break out of that corner and see the intentions, right? So these kind of become perspectives into which we retreat um, when there's conflict taking place as well. Yeah. And it's important to also understand that in terms of our legal system, right, it's not, it's not the intentions that we're looking at. It's the impact, right? Because so if I... <laughs> If I am speeding in a school zone, that's never happened. Um, I might not intend <laughs> to be putting children at harm, right? But that's the that's the impact. And so the judge doesn't care that I just moved to the area and didn't realize that the speed limit has changed, right? Like the impact is what it is. Or to even be more dramatic, if you harm someone with your vehicle, like you don't mean to, you might not intend to, but the impact is they're harmed, right? And so we've got to realize that intent does not equal impact. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what you put your finger on is exactly what the goal was in the passing of the 1964 civil rights act, right? Title seven. I mean, you know, um, most people are under the false notion that that's the first and perhaps only civil rights legislation. Uh, there was actually three other civil rights laws that were passed. The civil rights act of 1890, was in fact the first Civil Rights Act, right? But, but what the 1964 Civil Rights Act did that neither the previous Civil Rights Act did, nor did the 13th or 14th Amendment do, and that is the way it defined discrimination was in terms of impact rather than intention, right? So on, you know, if, if, someone, uh, um, if someone discriminated against you, the only way you were gonna win a lawsuit against them is that you had to show intentionality. Well, how does one do that, right? How does one bring into a legal situation evidence of intentionality, right? That, that in 
involved being able to take out a person's heart or their motivation and, and present that before a jury. So, so not much was won, right? But what the uh, what that law did is said, you know, it doesn't matter what you were intending, right? When you decided to say that leaders had to be at least six feet tall. By the way, that was a very real policy in most organizations, right, prior to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, right? They, they liked tall leaders, right? But of course, that had the unfortunate impact of creating a glass ceiling for many women who on average are not six feet tall. Uh, um, and so yet you have a seemingly innocent, right? A lot of people say we weren't trying to be sexist. We just like tall people, right? But, the, but you know, that law said doesn't matter. Right. Um, that that policy has the impact, what's called disparate impact, actually, of um, leading to, um, you know, a, a lack of access for women um, into positions for which, frankly, height has nothing to do with it. Right. I mean, if height were some kind of bona fide occupational qualification, that might be defensible. But it's never been proven to be something that people need. And so therefore, it could not be a defense that you could have for why you didn't um, proportionally hire women. So that's a good example of, and so once that was passed, right, then people had to really kind of think about this distinction, right? It's not about what we're intending to do, right? We, you know, you may seriously not really be thinking about, you know, uh, um, being discriminatory toward women when you have a height policy, right? But, but the law says it's impact. Right? And if you impact women in that way, that's discrimination regardless of intentionality. So, yeah. mm-hmm. And that's a really good example, Richard, of, of understanding how we end up seeing things and not understanding the ways that bias and policy shaped what we're seeing. And we just, we just think, yes, men are, men are just naturally better leaders and, and tall men are just naturally better leaders. And we don't often know that there was policy that backed that up, which then shapes who we who was a leader, which then shapes who we see as a leader. And so we have the remnants of that. And that's part of what at Raising Equity, we try to make make people think explicitly, like what systems are at play? What's the history here to think about how we can interrupt it? And so I appreciate you sharing that example around height, because that's one that I think folks don't often know. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting, right, because there have been studies that have been done at leadership, and they say, hey, if you look at the record of great leaders that we have, right, they've been tall people, right, but you can see how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you only allow tall people to be leaders, then those are the only examples you're going to have, right? I mean, right. As great as we think Winston Churchill is, as great as we think Abraham Lincoln was, right, tall, Abraham Lincoln's very tall kind of person, there may have been somebody who actually would have been better than either of them had those people been allowed access to that position. So, so we've created a self-fulfilling prophecy by these very policies. And when we retrospect, we think we see lots of evidence for these little pet theories that we have because those are the only people that were allowed access. Right. Right. Very good example. So one of the things we say in the article is people need to get specific, specific about internal and external actions and we we lift up a couple of organizations and let's just be real you know no there are very few companies that are without criticism 
But um, Uber is one that we thought did a pretty decent job about being explicit about what they were going to do internally and externally. And so externally, they have they have suspended delivery fees for the Uber Eats when you order from a Black-owned business, right? So that's going to be driving business to Black-owned businesses because, hey, no delivery fee. And internally, they have tied um, executive pay to these metrics. And I don't know exactly what those metrics are, but to DEI sort of metrics. And I think those are two good examples of getting real specific and not just, oh, we stand with the Black community or some some platitudes, but like, no, that's actually some specific actions. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like everything else, right? Language requires meaning. So if I say to you, I support you, right? The question is, what does that mean, right? You know, because that's such an omnibus term, right? You know, in terms of how we use it. Uh, um, and it's so, so, yeah, so, so if you're going to say terms like we support this or we, right, that's going to require, you know, here's the big word, operationalization, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to require making it tangible, right? So my question is always, so what does that look like specifically, right? When you use a word like that, support, we're motivated, we're, you know, whatever term you use, my next question is, so what does that look like? Because if you haven't really thought about what it looks like, then it really becomes meaningless. It really does. And that's why I think this whole idea of pushing people to sit with the discomfort, identify the harm, it might not feel good. Like I've heard in the past couple of weeks, a lot of white folks say, I, I feel ashamed. I feel guilt. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. That's, I, that's not good. Well, but there are emotions that we feel and maybe you're feeling, you know, that some some ways in which you might be complicit or and then so sit with that and then act from that. Don't stay stewing in it. But I don't know that we can avoid some of those uncomfortable feelings. I don't actually we cannot avoid some of those uncomfortable feelings. But from that, we can act. And so an example was in my house. I'm not um, I'm not a big fan of video games, but everyone else in the house is a fan. And I've been allowing it more because that's how the boys hang out with their friends, right? They get on and they talk to their friends and they play these games. And, and so they play the games with their dad. Like it's a, it's a family affair minus me. Um, and we turned on one of the games one night and they had this a Black Lives Matter statement. And I'm like, really? So at first it was just a statement. But then they talked about, they operationalized their commitment. And I have known... Since part of my concern with the boys playing in these online communities is that there's a lot of homophobia, there's a lot of racism, there's just a lot of hateful speak. And so one of their commitments was that they are going to increase monitoring of racist names and um, language, and then also increase how you can report people, like in-game reporting, so that, that it can be flagged faster. And so to me, that I, I appreciated that because they're acknowledging how it shows up in their environment, right? And deciding how they're going to act. So it's not like something you can, you can't just tell someone what to do. They, you, they've got to do the work to know what the problem is and the harm is in their community. So that's what gets me when some organizations call and they're just like, what do I do? It's like, well, you know your industry better than I. Right. I can't just tell you in five minutes what to do. Well, and, you know, I mean, the video game example is a good one. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but I, I had a McNair student who did his 
project on uh, racism and inequity in video game communities. So, oh, really? So, yeah. So, so a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, because that's what I thought about, right? Like, in order for them to have done that, they had to know where the problems tend to manifest. So, I mean, somebody did their homework and they knew these are the things that happen, right? Uh, I mean, in that, and that's part of what this project did, right? There's a, there's a lot of racial slurs that are shared in the midst of gaming, right? So, so somebody had to stick their finger up and get a sense of that, right? And of course, some of the other problems that, we, that we've discovered in video gaming, hopefully they'll, they'll deal with those too, is lack of representation of game characters. Mm-hmm. Or the like hypersexualized representation of women characters. Right, right. Yeah. Like I said, designers and those kind of things. And that speaks more to the, you know, content of the games as well as the designers themselves. But, but yeah, so, so I think that um, when people kind of come with this very generic kind of approach, it means they haven't taken the time to first begin to assess, right, where the problems are. Um, because only then can you speak to sort of real changes um, to make. And so, so I'm impressed by that example you gave. Yeah, I was too. And that's what I want to encourage people to do. I hope, I hope people read the article with the spirit of, all right, here's some things you can do. Because I know I've been doing this work for 20 years, which means you've been doing it for... <laughs> More than that. <laughs> <laughs> and so between us, we have lots of years of experience. And, and part of what I wanted to do with this article was to say, all right, yeah, now, are you really going to do something? And so here's what you can do knowing that the defensiveness is going to come, work through it. And I hope that people sort of read it with the constructive fervor in which we wrote it. Yes. I mean, we are both in the business of making organizations better. So so in no way um, did we write it with any kind of ill will toward tearing down organizations. I mean, you know, I get a good deal of my livelihood from organizations, so I don't want them to go away. I want them to be better so they can prosper, so they can pay me even more, right? So, so in that sense, I'm pro-organization. Um, and, and so I hope that people read it with that kind of spirit because that's definitely the spirit in which we wrote it in we were not angry people i think we smiled all the way through it now come on now (laughs) i just (laughs) i think i think i agree with you in that our hope was to help organizations see a way forward um and i actually think that anger can be a useful emotion right so for the clinical and psychologist in me part of my my approach in writing it was to also just say to normalize to normalize the difficulty and, and to realize, you know, you think you're going to be airing your dirty laundry. We all have laundry. No one is without dirty laundry. <laughs> and so my, my hope was, yeah, here's some ways forward and, and don't get caught in the shame and wanting to hide and assuming you're alone because unfortunately you're not. And hey, fortunately you're not. So it's a, it's a both and in wanting people to acknowledge and push through the hard work but also normalize that, that you're not alone, but also hold folks' feet to the fire that that work, that growth, like you said, will make your organization stronger and better. There's an analogy that I've been using lately. I go in and out of doing like strength resistance training sort of challenges. 
Um, and it's like lifting weight, right? Like you would never go into the gym, lift a heavy weight and be like, I'm strong. It's done. (laughs) You know, you would, you would know that you would probably need some expert advice, that you would need to set up a plan, that you would need to be accountable to that plan, which is easier said than done. We all know, right? And that you would need to do that consistently over time, lift heavy weights that are difficult and uncomfortable over time before you would even expect to see results. Yet at this moment of crisis, I feel people like wanting to fix things overnight or wanting to like make the hurt go away. And it's like, no, actually strength is built by tearing muscle down to build it up stronger. And so I see this as a, it could, I think it's an opportunity if we have the wherewithal, kind of like a metamorphosis, whether you think about it like a butterfly or building muscle, whatever analogy works for you, that we can get through this hard work and experience the growth and benefit on the other side of it. But we got to do the work. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you mentioned that earlier, and this is actually probably more in your field than mine, but I, I remember reading some time ago, and I don't remember the guy's name, he was a specialist in drug addiction, but he made this statement that stood out to me, and as it seems very apropos now, and he was talking about the fact, he says, a lot of addiction is due to the fact that we're under the impression that we should never hurt. Right. And so this idea that all of our pains should go away by taking a pill, of course, he was talking about how people become addicted to prescription medicine. I think it was like soon after Prince had passed away. Mm. Uh, um, but but that was kind of interesting to me. And so even, you know, this idea of, right, we, 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 don't, we can't bear the experience of negative emotions. We must eliminate them immediately. Right. And, and of course, what he was saying about that is that that's unhealthy right? It's unhealthy to never be willing to sit in the fire. There's some value to doing that. There's, there's some value to building up endurance, uh, if nothing else, developing humility uh, um, in that sense there. And so, so I was thinking about that when you said that. Yeah. We've got, we, we have to do that to be healthy people. Otherwise, we keep looking for pills, right? You know, to take away the pain. Right, right. To remove the uncomfortableness rather than developing some immunity right, within ourselves um, that helps us to deal with that. Some endorphins. Yeah. You know, just- and building some uh, capacity and some strength to to lift that heavy weight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you for being willing to write the piece because it was a pretty quick turnaround. It was kind of like, hey, Richard, <laughs> want to do this tomorrow? Well, I appreciate you for bringing me in. You know, I don't think you needed me. Um, and so it was great that you were allowed, that you allowed me to kind of partner with you to do it. So I, I truly appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are a wealth of knowledge, Mr. I have two PhDs and two areas of psychology. So I really do appreciate your depth of knowledge. You always, always bring something to the conversation. So thank you. Those two degrees just got me one job. So, you know. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yep. And thank you for joining us on Raising Equity. I hope that you were able to reflect on maybe what your company needs to do, but also in your own sphere of influence. What can you do to really understand the harm and then take action to impact racism and to stop the harm? I really appreciate you joining us on Raising Equity. Thanks for joining us.